Good evening. Anthony Blinken's in Israel meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu and other leaders of the Palestinian and Arab nations involved in peace talks uh, to end the 11-day fight that occurred uh, earlier this month in between Gaza and uh, and Israel. Um, we hear from the new uh, White House Principal Press Secretary, the first African-American woman in uh, 30 years to serve in that spot, and she announces a 90-day intelligence review of allegations that China knew about the coronavirus long before it reached American shores and spread throughout the world. And PPP loans. There's a certain amount of corruption involved. We get to the heart of the matter. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday, May 26, 2021. An employee opened fire Wednesday at a California rail yard serving Silicon Valley, Valley, killing eight people before ending his own life. The shooting, shooting took place around 6.30 a.m. in two buildings that are part of a light rail facility for the Valley Transportation Authority, which provides bus, light rail, and other transit services through the county, the most populated county in the Bay Area. Today's attack was the county's second shooting in less than two years. A gunman killed three people before killing himself at a popular garlic festival in Gilroy in July 2019. I remember that story. And United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up a two-day Mideast mission on Wednesday, winning valuable diplomatic support and hundreds of millions of dollars of pledges from Arab allies as he moved to shore up the ceasefire that ended an 11-day war between Israel and the Gaza Strip's militant Hamas rulers. But the mission made little headway in resolving the deeper issues at the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including the tensions in the contested holy city of Jerusalem that played a key role in the latest war. Earlier, he was in Egypt for talks with President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. The visits came a day after intensive talks with Israeli and Palestinian leaders. Blinken has vowed to rally international support to rebuild hard-hit Gaza while promising to make sure that none of the aid reaches Hamas. He's also trying to bolster Hamas's rival, the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority. He spoke today at a news conference with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Intense uh, behind-the-scenes uh, diplomacy led by President Biden, working very closely with, um, with the Prime Minister, helped produce last week's ceasefire. Now we believe we must uh, build on it. That starts with the recognition that uh, losses on both sides uh, were profound. Casualties are often reduced uh, to numbers. But behind every number is an individual human being, a daughter, a son, a father, a mother, a grandparent, a best friend, and as the Talmud teaches, uh, to lose a life is to lose the whole world, whether that life is Palestinian or Israeli. I underscored uh, to the Prime Minister something that President Biden made crystal clear throughout the violence. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself against attacks, such as the thousands of rockets fired by Hamas indiscriminately. This commitment is personal. It runs deep. We had a detailed discussion about Israel's security needs, including replenishing uh, Iron Dome. We'll continue to strengthen all aspects of our longstanding partnership. And that includes consulting closely with Israel, as we did today, uh, on uh, the ongoing negotiations in Vienna around a potential return to the Iran nuclear agreement, the same time as we continue to work together to counter Iran's destabilizing actions in the region. We know that to prevent a return to violence, we have to use the space created to address a larger set of underlying issues and challenges. 
And that begins with tackling the grave humanitarian situation in Gaza and starting to rebuild. The United States will work to rally international support around that effort while also making our own significant contributions. We need to work to expand uh, opportunity for Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank, uh, including by strengthening the private sector, expanding trade and investment, and uh, other means. We believe that Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely, to enjoy equal measures of freedom, opportunity, and democracy, to be treated with dignity. We also discussed some of the intercommunal violence that uh, erupted in Israel during the conflict, and healing these wounds uh, will take leadership at every level. In our own country, in the United States, uh, we've witnessed a shocking eruption of anti-Semitic attacks. As President Biden said just yesterday, they are despicable and they must stop. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But Netanyahu was adamant that Israel's main focus was keeping the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal and self-defense against Palestinian rocket attacks. And we have uh, discussed ways of how to work together to prevent Hamas uh, rearmament uh, with the weapons uh, and means of uh, aggression. The second point is... uh, naturally is Iran. We discuss many regional issues, but none is greater than Iran. And I can tell you that I hope that the United States will not go back to the old JCPOA, because we believe that that deal paves uh, the way for Iran to have an arsenal of uh, nuclear weapons with international legitimacy. And that's Prime Minister of Israel, Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. The 11-day war killed more than 250 people, mostly Palestinians, and caused heavy destruction in the impoverished coastal territory. Preliminary estimates have put the damage in the hundreds of millions of dollars. In all, the Biden administration has pledged some $360 million in aid to the Palestinians. In all, uh, the truce remains tenuous, though, since tensions are still high in Jerusalem and the fate of Palestinian families is yet to be resolved. And in Washington, White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre made history when she stepped behind the podium in the James S. Brady briefing room on Wednesday afternoon. That's today, becoming just the second African-American woman to lead a formal White House press briefing and the first in 30 years. It's a real honor to be standing, uh, to just be standing here today. It it doesn't, um, I appreciate the historic nature, I really do. I believe that being behind this podium, being in this room, being in this building is not about one person. It's about what we do on behalf of the American people. Clearly the president believes in, in representation matters and I appreciate him giving me this opportunity. And it's another reason why I think we are all so proud that this is the most diverse administration in history. But again, this is not about me. This is not about any of us. And any time I'm behind here, and I think you've heard Jen say this as well, we are going to be truthful. We're going to be transparent. And that's the way I believe the president would want us to communicate to the American people. Thank you for the question. And Jean-Pierre went on to announce an intelligence, uh, pardon me, intelligence investigation into reports the coronavirus escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China in November 2019 before it arrived in the United States. 
Today, the president asked the intelligence community to redouble their efforts to collect and analyze information that could bring us closer to a definitive conclusion and to a report back to him in 90 days. Back in early 2020, the president called for the CDC to get access to China to learn about the virus so we could fight it more effectively. Getting to the bottom of the origin is this of this pandemic will help us understand how to prepare for the next pandemic and the next one. As we have done throughout our COVID response, we have been committed to a whole of government effort to ensure we're doing everything to both understand and end this pandemic and to prevent future pandemics. This is why the president is asking the U.S. intelligence community in cooperation with other elements of our government to redouble efforts to collect and analyze information that could bring the world closer to a definitive conclusion on the origin of the virus and deliver a report to him again in 90 days. It will be another whole of government effort, as I mentioned, including work by our national labs and other agencies. Importantly, we will continue to pushing for a stronger multi multilateral investigation into the origins of the virus in China. And we will continue to press China to participate in a full, transparent, evidence-based international investigation with the needed access to get to the bottom of a virus that's taken more than three million lives across the globe. And critically, to share information and lessons that will help us all prevent future pandemics. And she took some questions from conservative journalists on the United States' plans to punish China if it's discovered they knew about the virus and didn't warn the world. Anything that kills 591,116 Americans, uh, is that something if another uh, nation either was responsible or knew more than they were letting on? Like you said, they weren't letting the inspectors in, and that hurt the overall investigation forever. What would the president do? Would he do anything? I mean, he's doing something right now. He's been t- he asked his team back in March, right, to do to do this, uh, to look into this, look into the origins uh, of of COVID nineteen. This is incredibly important. Like his statement says, we need to find out how where the COVID nineteen originated from. So this per- the president has been very clear. He actually you know spoke out uh, about this back in twenty twenty. So this is not the first time we've heard uh, his voice his concern uh, about the origins of COVID-19. So we're just taking the next step. I'm just not going to prejudge. I'm not going to make uh, a statement until, uh, you know, until we know what happens after this 90-day review. White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that three researchers from China's Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick enough in November 2019 that they sought hospital care. That's according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report that could add weight to growing calls for a fuller probe of whether COVID-19 may have escaped from the laboratory. Republicans, including former President Donald Trump, have promoted the theory the virus emerged from a laboratory accident rather than naturally through human contact with an infected animal in Wuhan, China. Biden, in a statement, said the majority of the intelligence community had coalesced around two scenarios, both of them, that it was either made in the laboratory, man-made, or came through naturally through human contact with bats and other animals. Uh, But he does not believe, that is Biden, that there is sufficient information to assess 
one to be more likely than the other. He revealed that two agencies lean toward the animal link and one leans more toward the lab theory, each with low or moderate confidence. And in more Washington news, the Senate narrowly confirmed Kristen Clark yesterday to be the Justice Department's civil rights chief, making her the first black woman to fill the high profile role. The Senate voted 51 to 48 to confirm Clark. Senator Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, was the lone Republican to support President Joe Biden's nominee to lead a powerful division of the Justice Department that's in charge of investigating police abuses and enforcing voting rights laws and federal statutes prohibiting discrimination based on race, sex, religion and other factors. Clark fills the post at a pivotal time for the Justice Department as high-profile deaths of black citizens during encounters with police have led to months of protests and calls for reform. Clark, a longtime civil rights attorney, is likely to reinvigorate investigations of troubled police agencies, inquiries that languished during the Trump administration. And in more COVID news, in response to the economic damage done by the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, the federal government established a $953 billion business loan program through the CARES Act. The purpose was to help small business, sole proprietors, and nonprofits. Known as PPP, the program provides low-interest loans to pay for their payroll and certain other costs. Implemented by the Small Business Administration, PPP was found to have failed in aiding floundering companies. Instead, mostly helping businesses that were in no danger of failure. The program was heavily criticized for potential conflict of interest. Several members of Congress, for example, got PPP loans, and members of the Trump administration got help too. Churches, anti-vaccination organizations, and large corporations, including the Los Angeles Lakers baseball team, pardon me, basketball team, that company, uh, that company eventually returned the loan. Uh, there was also millions in straight-up corruption in the program. ProPublica recently published an investigative report. Hundreds of PPP loans went to fake farms in absurd places. The authors of the article discovered an online lending platform called Cabbage, that's with a K, K-A-B-B-A-G-E, sent 378 pandemic loans worth $7 million to fake companies, mostly farms, with names like Dealey Nuts and Beefy King. Cabbage, which was acquired by American Express last fall, didn't have an explanation for ProPublica's specific findings, but said it adhered to required fraud protocols. One of the authors of the report is Lydia DePillis. 378 loans made by a company called Cabbage for the Paycheck Protection Program. And these loans didn't show up in state business records, which is a pretty good indicator that they don't exist. And along with that, they were just very odd businesses. They were mostly categorized as farms, and they were registered to residential addresses in places that really couldn't plausibly have such farms, like a potato field in Miami or a orange grove in Minnesota. And they were all very similar in their amounts and when they were approved, and it just seemed too similar to be coincidental. But we did not get to the bottom of who actually applied for all these loans. And that's in part because we don't have access to the same kind of information that the SBA or the lender would have. We only are working with part of it that they decided to release. So that is still a mystery. Do you think that this is improper? It really appears to us to be that way. Um, and that is also that impression is sort of reinforced by reporting on the company itself. Cabbage did the second highest number of loans in the first round of PPP last year, second only to Bank of America. And they were able to do that because they had highly automated software that didn't necessarily pick up on 
forged documents. And we know that as well through lawsuits that Department of Justice has already brought, saying that, look, Cabbage Inn, they're not against the lender. They are against the fraudulent borrower. And it seems through reading the indictments that it wouldn't have been that hard to spot. How much money was involved here? We found that this specific pattern, it was about $7 million, which is a pretty small chunk of the $7 billion that Cabbage processed last year. But we have plenty of reason to believe that that's not the only type of fraud that Cabbage allowed to slip through its platform. It's just like the one that we picked up on um, in this particular pattern. And it's not just Cabbage. There's also plenty of other lenders, both online and traditional, that didn't do the kind of due diligence you normally do to make sure that somebody is real once once they get it checked it has to be cut and sent somewhere right that's right so we don't know that either because they don't have the bank account numbers it was not sent to the residents of the houses to which the loans uh, were registered because the people we contacted at those places had no idea what we were talking about so they didn't get the money false Um, addresses is that what you're implying is false addresses well they're real addresses but they don't have a business associated with them. Is this unusual? Yeah, I mean, we've never seen a a program on this scale before, so there's no way of saying what's usual and what's not. I mean, I think that lenders devote a lot of resources to fighting identity theft fraud in their normal lending programs, but usually they have plenty of time and lots more documentation that they can rely on. And the Paycheck Protection Program, as well as the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, was lending to tiny businesses, single-person businesses that normally wouldn't have a relationship with the banking system at all, so or even a credit profile. They were, it was totally unprecedented circumstances, and for that reason, it's kind of reasonable to believe that there would be a lot more fraud associated with it. This could be a story about a large organization that sort of looked the other way in order to increase its cash flow at a key time. Yeah, again, it's not just cabbage. It's the way the program was set up. And that is... Lydia DePillis, who's from the news organization ProPublica. In acquiring Cabbage, American Express didn't buy the part of the company that handled loan forgiveness, a fairly easy procedure under the CARES Act. It spun off that part of the business to another company called K-Servicing. Most of the loans were apparently fairly granted. The bad loans were a tiny percentage. As a note, Pacifica Radio, the foundation that owns WBAI, was granted two PPP loans for a total of almost $2.5 million. Most of it went to pay salaries of the occasionally financially beleaguered foundation. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor Bill de Blasio had today's COVID indicators for New York City. We're making our own luck by doing the right thing in this city, by going out there, getting vaccinated. You can see the impact Here we go. Number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 59 patients, just wonderfully low. Let's keep driving it down. Confirmed positivity, 20.34%. Hospitalization rate, today's number, 0.79. Again, 0.79 per 100,000. That's tremendous progress. Number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 385 cases. So continued progress because of vaccination. Number three, percentage of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Today's report, seven-day rolling average, 1.08%. Keep getting vaccinated, New York City. Let's get that below 1%. We obviously can do it. Let's double down now and go even farther. Mayor de Blasio. 
And yesterday marked one year since George Floyd was killed by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who held the unarmed black man under his knee for more than nine minutes, crushing the life out of him as the 43-year-old Floyd begged to breathe. Chauvin was convicted in April of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter following a three-week trial. Three other former officers are still awaiting trial in the case. In New York, meanwhile, hundreds of protesters marched on the roadway of the Brooklyn-bound side of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City yesterday, chanting and holding signs for George Floyd. And Governor Cuomo marked the day in a news conference where he says communities and police lack mutual trust. And it is that relationship of this trust. Yes, George Floyd brought it to a head nationally, but it happens again and again and again and again. Uh, anniversary of George Floyd. Uh, his family is in our prayers and best wishes. But the message is, we still have more to do because it is about the relationship. Use of force. What they're saying is, I don't trust the police department now to use the appropriate force necessary. I don't trust the police department now to do X, Y, and Z. Defund the police is not the answer, in my opinion. Defund the police basically means abolish the police. Oh, that's, that's going to help? Gun violence going up, all crimes are going up. Your answer is abolish the police? No. It's reform public safety in collaboration with the community so the community says... Uh, I now trust the relationship. And New York City has been seeing a spike in crime data. More than two dozen people were shot in New York City over the weekend and a 100 percent increase compared with the same three day period last year. The surge in gun violence that terrorized the city in 2020 showed little signs of abating with 26 people shot from Friday through Sunday, two of them fatally. In the same Friday to Sunday span in 2020, 13 New Yorkers were victims of gunplay. Governor Cuomo talked about crime rate and in a swipe to Mayor Bill de Blasio. And the mayor has been saying that the latest crime stats are a result of COVID and just a blip on the screen. The new projects, we're stimulating small business. What comes before that is people have to feel safe, public safety. Otherwise, none of it works. None of it works. You look at the economic trajectory of New York City. You look at the rate of crime in New York City, and there's a direct correlation. Uh, invest in your small business in Flatbush, Brooklyn. I'm not going to invest if I feel the neighborhood is unsafe. So we have a major crime problem. We have a major problem in the subway system. MTA did a report that uh, the number of police on trains 
in the subway station is de minimis. New Yorkers don't feel safe. You know why they don't feel safe? Because the crime rate is up. It's not that they are uh, being neurotic or overly sensitive. They're right. They are right. And that is Governor uh, Cuomo. And then uh, uh, in his own press conference, the mayor responded uh, by uh, talking about the damage that the uh, Trump administration had done to New York as he praised his outgoing uh, uh, the city's outgoing lawyer, Jim Johnson. You can't make things like this work, uh, fighting back a global pandemic. You can't do it without extraordinary advisors and smart legal minds. Jim Johnson played that role beautifully. But he did know when he got into the role that he would be dealing with the vagaries and challenges of the federal government. He spent a lot of time fighting back uh, absolutely inappropriate attacks from the Trump administration. So many attacks on our efforts to work with and respect and help immigrants. Uh, the ludicrous uh, attack on New York City and other cities as quote-unquote anarchist cities. And yet, it seems surreal now, but looking back then, it was a real threat to our federal funding and our ability to do the work we had to do. Uh, Jim successfully fought back all of these attacks with his colleagues he also played a crucial effort, excuse me, crucial role in our police reform efforts, uh, putting out a very important report at the end of last year on additional reforms we have to make, which are being implemented right now. So just want to express my thanks to Jim for a job well done at a crucial time in New York City history. And that was, of course, Jim Johnson, who just retired for the first time in New York City history. He'll be replaced. A woman will lead the city's law department. Mayor de Blasio announced today that Georgia Pastana, the daughter of Cuban immigrants and a veteran of the law department for more than 30 years, will replace Jim Johnson as the city's corporation counsel, making her the first woman and first Latina to hold the high-ranking job. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, May 26, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. Hello, WBAI listeners and supporters. If you appreciate interacting with members of the WBAI Local Station Board, then tune in Friday, May 28th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. for the fourth report of 2021 from the WBAI Local Station Board. 